Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 30, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. My guest on today's episode is James Grime, the Enigma Project Officer for the Millennium Mathematics Project at Cambridge. We discuss the Enigma Project, the importance that television can play in mathematical inspiration, as well as a certain mathematical YouTube channel. Here we go! Hello and welcome to Strongly Connect Components. My guest on today's episode is James Grime. He is the project officer of the Enigma Project, part of the Millennium Mathematics Project, as well as a mathematical YouTube phenomenon and perhaps the best dressed man in all of mathematics. Hello, James. Uh, well, well, second only to yourself, surely. Well, I I wasn't going to say that, but I'm I'm more than <laughs> happy to take the compliment. You. There you go. Thank you very much. Well, let's call it a draw. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to okay, take that. Okay, there you go. So we got we start off with a mutual love in there <laughs> of our waistcoats. I I do I do like a good waistcoat. I really do. <laughs> so I'm as I mentioned, you're the Enigma uh, Project officer. Could yes. you uh, tell uh, my listeners a little bit about what the Enigma Project is? Okay, so the Enigma project, which I run, which is a, a marvelous thing, it's part of uh, this Millennium Mathematics project, which you mentioned. The Millennium Mathematics project was set up, as the name suggests, about 11 years ago. And it's part of Cambridge University's maths department. And it's essentially the outreach part of the maths department. Uh, so we'll go out and we will promote mathematics. My role in that organization is to tour, well, mainly the UK, but not just the UK. I do go around the world as well, which is quite exciting, with an Enigma machine from World War II, which is the the code-breaking machine or the code-making machine that Nazi Germany were using. And we go into schools and other organizations to uh, show them an exciting and important use of mathematics. Now, you mentioned you do uh, go around the world with this. Recently, at least semi-recently, you were in Finland. What was it like traveling from the UK to Finland to give the talks? Oh, yeah, no, that was great. It was an honor to be asked. It was a real pleasure. I got treated like an important person, which I'm not used to. And, yeah, for a week, I did a little sort of tour of Finland, yeah, around the towns of Finland, giving this enigma speech obviously i was doing it in english but uh, that seemed to go down quite well i mean you give this talk at schools a lot and but you also give it in general audiences uh, what sort of difference do you notice when you're giving it to say a general audience that consists of adults uh, versus an audience that consists with students you have to change up how you present it or yes there is a there is a change and um, largely the material is the same but for adults which might not be what you expect for adults is actually less mathematical because these adults have come out for the evening to listen to a talk and they're not all mathematicians 
so they want to be entertained as well. So you do a few more stories, uh, make it a bit more historical and a little less mathematical. Though with the students, I'm trying to show them the mathematics. I I, I mean, we've talked a, around what you actually give your talk and what specific like areas of, say, mathematics do you cover when you do give this talk to people? So we're talking about the history of code breaking or cryptography, should we say. And that really, that subject does cover pretty much a, a lot of mathematics. Uh, so I would start off the talk with something simple, something that people would do as children, which would be a code, a simple code called the Caesar cipher. The Caesar cipher would simply take the alphabet and move it along maybe one or two places. So an A would be a C and a B, the letter B would be a D. So that's a really simple thing that kids do. However, underneath that code, we're talking about mathematically things like modular arithmetic. So already we're touching on you know, advanced mathematics, or at least mathematics that you would expect to see at university. Uh, after that, we'll talk about a more general type of code, substituting one letter for another, but in a more general way. Again, I might not go too deep into the mathematics, depending on my audience, but the mathematics underneath that would be functions and one-to-one -one functions, onto functions, invertible functions, things like that, and even getting into group theory, which is what I really do. You, you clearly have a very large interest in mathematics, and even though you currently are working as an outreach officer, essentially, you were originally a research mathematician. You have your PhD, you have your master's degree in mathematics. What sort of pushed you to go from doing the pure research into communicating mathematics in a non-research setting? Mm, yeah, uh, well, well I, the real answer to that is when I was a kid, my, I don't come from a family of scientists or mathematicians or anything like that, and the school that I went to, which I won't name, wasn't very good. Uh, it wasn't a great school, so I wasn't really getting the sort of inspiration and motivation that I could do, because I was naturally good at mathematics. The only thing that I had was the television. Although people say, oh, the television is awful, not for me at all. The television was where I was getting science documentaries and kids' TV shows about mathematics, which we would have over here. And in particular, uh, we have a, a series on Christmas week, which is the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures. They're, they're televised lectures for young people, and they, and they actually televise them uh, on Christmas week, and they'll be about physics, chemistry, something like that. Or they might be about mathematics, which I know I can remember one series was about when I was a kid. And these television shows were what inspired me. All I want to do now is to pass on that same inspiration that I had from those television presenters from when I was a kid. I saw in other places you mentioned that one of the things on TV that really inspired you was something called Johnny Ball. Mm, Johnny Ball. Yeah, Johnny Ball. So <laughs> Johnny Ball, well, I'll have to explain this then for non-UK people. Uh, yeah, Johnny Ball had a, a series, a number of television series about mathematics. His show was called Think of a Number. 
And he was a well-known figure in Britain so for popularising mathematics. And he was also presenting you know, many other uh, TV shows at the time. He is a well-known figure here. Uh, for people of a certain age, uh, people who grew up in the uh, maybe early 80s, uh, they would know who that was. Okay, and so he just, in his shows, I mean, he had a show, as you mentioned, about mathematics, and was, and you said that uh, the school, uh, which shall not be named, was not especially good. When you managed to draw on that sort of thing for inspiration, I, I understand how that works, but uh, do you think that you all, I mean, you draw on it for inspiration, but do you think it takes a certain sort of person to be able to take that inspiration and then actually bring it into becoming truly interested and good at a subject or do you just think that inspiration in and of itself can do that i think the real problem is it would be difficult or more difficult for someone to take on something like mathematics to an advanced level without that inspiration i don't know if the inspiration could lead to anyone doing mathematics but i think it might be harder uh, for some person who could do mathematics to actually go on and do it without that inspiration. I, I'm not, I would not disagree with this at all, but do you think that there is definitely a certain lack of mathematical inspiration out in the world currently? Well, I don't know about where you are. In the UK, there's actually now a growing community of maths communication going on. And I think it's been growing for, I don't know, about 10 years. And there was Johnny Ball when I grew up as a kid, but I don't know if I quite noticed it in the 90s, but maybe for the last 10 years or so, there's been a growing community in the UK of math and science communicators. But, but of course, I'm much more interested in, in this phenomenon of uh, maths communicators. Do you have any idea what could have caused that sort of community to kind of sprout up and start growing? Because I definitely agree, I interview a lot of math communicators from the UK. It's, it's difficult to say. I, I, no, hang on. There is something that would, I don't know if I'm right in saying this, but in about 1997 was, of course, when Andrew Wiles published his Proof to Fermat's Last Theorem. Now, that was a big new story. All over the world, that was a big news story. He was on Times Magazine and you know, Man of the Year, that, was, you know, that sort of thing. So this was a big news story at the time. And then Simon Singh, who is a, an author and TV maker, he made a, a, a programme uh, for a, a British, a BBC series called Horizon about Andrew Wiles and his proof of Fermat's Last Theorem. And he read an accompanying book with it, which was a bestseller. I think for me, that was a turning point. And I started to see a lot more of that after that point. So maybe, maybe, well, maybe that's a large part of it. Simon Singh is someone I work with on the Enigma project as well. Uh, so, which was a, a thrill for me. Because obviously I, I did see Simon's program about Fermat's theorem. I actually saw his original publicity tour, and 10 years later, I was working with Simon, showing off the Enigma machine that actually Simon owns. Now, you mentioned earlier that 
not only uh, did you catch this inspiration from TV, but you were just naturally talented at mathematics. In a different interview, an interview you were actually kind enough to send me so I could uh, use it to research this, you actually stated that mathematics is perfect for the lazy student. And I myself am lazy and, and have found that. But what did you actually mean by that statement? What's sort of the context for saying that mathematics is good for a lazy student? Well, it, I, it, I really do. I think it is a good subject for a lazy student. For a lazy student, that in mathematics, no essays to write, no reading lists, so no books to read. If you turn up to your lectures, you can do the homework. If you can do the homework, you can do the exam. Maybe it's the lazy student with some mathematical ability. And it's also a, a slightly stolen quote because it was um, something that was said by Tom Lehrer as well, who's another one of my mathematical heroes. So if it's good enough for Tom Lehrer, it's good enough for me. So let's let's move on to uh, something. Well, actually, the first way that I ever got to know you, uh, and that's through your singing banana videos on YouTube. Yeah. And which is his YouTube name? It's youtube.com slash singing banana. Is that correct? Yeah, of course it is. Okay. Of course it is. What else would it be? I I I don't know, James. I perfectly perfectly reasonable. <laughs> what else would you call a mathematical channel? Yeah, except for the singing banana channel. It's, I, I have no idea because there aren't any other as far as I've been able to tell. So these are very interesting and very well done videos. What was your impetus behind starting a mathematical channel on YouTube? Oh, well, what really happened was I met up with a, a friend of mine called Colin Wright. Now, Colin Wright is another maths communicator. Uh, he tours around the country as well with a talk of his own about uh, the mathematics of juggling. Colin and I were got together in the pub, and he was showing me a little puzzle that he was playing around with at the time. And it was actually a mind-reading puzzle. And it, was, it was something that he had sort of come up with. I think he took the mathematical idea from somewhere else, and he was playing with it, and he was trying to come up with a, a mind-reading trick to use this mathematical idea. And, well, I went away from that, and I thought... This, this puzzle is good, but there's, there's something not quite right about it. The way that Colin had written it, the, the probability should be that by chance alone, we would get the correct answer 25% of the time. And the way Colin had written it, he said, oh, but we could increase that to 50% of the time, which means, oh, we're reading each other's mind. We've increased the probability. And I didn't like it because it wasn't impressive enough to increase it to 50%. <laughs> of the time. I, I went away, I thought about it, and uh, I rewrote the puzzle. And we actually, I actually uh, gave it a spin so that we could turn the probability from 25% to 0%, guaranteed 0%, was actually a backwards way to do the puzzle. And with the right story, this was a good thing, which meant that you, know, you, were never, you would never get this mind-reading trick right. You could never get the mind-reading trick right, which would be um, an advantage if you were accused of being a witch, which was how I span it, how I gave it a little spin. Now, I wanted to show Colin this, this rewritten puzzle. So I roped in a, a friend, one of my students, in fact, from uh, York University. We filmed the video. I stuck it on YouTube so he could see it. And yeah, people started commenting on it. All my friends, well, at least started to comment on it. So... 
I thought, well, okay, let's let's keep this up. And I started to make a few more. I grew very slowly. It, you know, I was I, I was I was pleased to have a hundred subscribers uh, at one point, and it has been a long, slow, growing process from that. One thing that strikes me as very interesting about these videos, other than their content, which is, of course, interesting, is that you tend to do them in two parts. The first part, you'll you'll put up the puzzle or the problem itself, and then you tend to post about a week or two weeks later, I, I don't know your exact release schedule, the solution video. And so what, what made you decide that putting it up in the two separate parts instead of, say, just a pause and then going into the solution was the right way to attack giving a both a puzzle that you want people to work on and being able to let them know if they were right or not. Yeah, I think, well, I think if you did do it in one part, I'm, I'm guilty of this as anyone. If you just give them the answer and they say, oh, it's after the jump or it's, uh, you know, it's coming up next, yeah, people will just watch it straight through and, and they won't try. So you, know, you want people to join in and try the puzzle and, and have the fun of, of doing that. And, and I think the only way to stop them from cheating is to make it into two parts. So that, I think that's just a natural thing to do. The only possible exception I have for that is when I give them a, an impossible problem. <laughs> uh, in, so in mathematics, you get these puzzles sometimes where, it, where it's impossible to solve. And I feel it's a bit cruel, too cruel, to pretend it's a, a, a something you can solve and then, and then post a solution later saying, ah, oh, not really. In that case, I would just do that in one long video. One thing in the videos when you watch them, you will definitely understand, and it's something that I understand because I've watched the filming of one of these videos, actually, is that you are very invested in the use of visual aids and props and doing things in a very hands-on manner. I remember the bells and I remember the cube from a one of the more recent ones on the channel, a bell ring video. I suggest everyone go and watch that. You can see my buddy Peter in there as well. And so what, what made you decide to use, and I, if you go farther back, you'll also see a lot of visual aids. What made you decide to use so many visual aids and sort of props and uh, those sort of things when you're doing this? I imagine when you're teaching as well. Yeah, it, it's just the way I am. So uh, one of my hobbies is I'm a juggler and I juggle and, you know, and I juggle many things, clubs, balls, rings, fire, knives, all those things, I unicycle, I Diablo, I'm pretty much a jack of all trades and master of none. So this is a natural thing. I'm a very playful sort of person. My house is full of robot dogs and, and things like that. So this is just the way I am. So I guess there is no other way I could be. I, that props are just something that comes natural for me. My role in uh, the juggling society that I'm in, because yeah, jugglers get together and they do play together and they, they juggle together and have fun together. I often am the one who will come up with games and, and sort of come up with unusual props and things like that. So it's just the way I'm built. Now, it is another thing I, I want to talk about. I, I was, when I saw you do the video, that was when we were in the Maths Jam conference in England back in November. And one thing that I definitely noticed after watching you uh, give your uh, give a couple of talks as well as introduce some people and then later on make the video is that you have this sort of 
impossible amount of energy. And I was wondering how you sustain that sort of energy, talking about mathematics all the time, especially in front of what I imagine are probably at least mildly hostile audiences. I, I don't know. Maybe that's something I stole from Johnny Ball because that's what he used to do. Johnny Ball would run onto the and he would jump up. At least this is my memory of him. I think my memory may be faulty, but he, he used to jump up, jump up and down and very excitedly talk about mathematics and all you know, the parabolic path of a, a projectile and things like that. And maybe I, I've got that from him or, well, of course, I, I am a, a juggler as well, and I am used to standing on street corners. I have busked on street corners, get the crowd in, get them gathered around, chat with them, joke with them. Yes, so I guess the stuff that I do now uses all the skills that I have. It, it uses everything that I know what to do. I, it uses my mathematics, my teaching even, but then it uses my, my juggling performances and Everything that I know how to do, I use in this maths communication job that I do now. Oh, I I have to say, after uh, watching you say later on after the first day of Mass Jam, you uh, definitely managed to bring in groups of people that I would not have expected and uh, make them like us a lot more. As a matter of fact, I believe it was a group of youth workers who, uh, thanks to you and uh, Matt Parker, all of a sudden decided to like mathematicians. <laughs> they were hostile when, uh, when they first came in. They weren't so sure. Yeah, well, I, I, I believe the comedy and card tricks that you two did worked very well in that situation. Although I am sometimes hesitant to do the tricks, to do that sort of... So I have never... Um, Colin Wright does a talk about mathematics of juggling, who I mentioned earlier, but... I always, I've, I've always resisted the temptation to go into a serious lecture, perhaps, which I might be giving to university students and come in on a unicycle or something like that. I've always tried to resist doing that sort of cheap tricks to make people like mathematics because people should enjoy the mathematics for itself as well. So I, I am conflicted in that way. There's one part of me who wants to entertain and there's another part of me who is a serious mathematician and wants to do mathematics for its own sake. Yeah, well, I am just have one final question for you. And uh, that is, I mean, for the good of everyone in the listening audience, what exactly are you wearing today? Uh, what? Oh, no. Well, now, now you've mentioned that. Hang on, I'll lie. I'm wearing a three-piece suit, tie. I've got my trilby on. I'm not wearing a black T-shirt at all. Okay. Well, see, I actually, it's, it's 9.30 in the morning. I changed into an Oxford button-down charcoal suit and bow tie for this. This is my it's Saturday. It's my day off. <laughs> yeah, I realize, but it's, it's 9.30 in the morning. I still did it. Sorry, I didn't know this was the 1930s where people <laughs> used to dress up to listen to the wireless. But I'll know for next time. Next time we have a Skype conversation, <laughs> I'll make sure I'll dress for the occasion. Okay, well, James, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining me. Bye.
Well, that is all the time we have for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. Thank you all for listening. If you have any feedback or perhaps you want to suggest a guest for the show, send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. Also, make sure to go to acmescience.com. Check out links about a James that you can find in the blog post for this episode. And you can also find out about the newest Acme Science podcast, Sam and Dan and, where... I, Samuel Hansen, and my co-host, Dan Sai, talk about awesome science fiction movies in the 80s. We start with Buckaroo Banzai, which if you haven't watched it, you really should. The music on today's episode is from Hard and Firm. The song is Pie off their album Horses and Grasses, and the song I'm talking over right now is from SP12. You can find over at opsound.org. This episode is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Share-Alike Licensing. And if you don't know what that means, Google Creative Commons. They're a good group. Really, they are. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that you uh, continue listening to the next Strongly Connected Components. <laughs>